Easter Sunday, or better, Resurrection Sunday, is my favorite Christian holiday. It beats out Thanksgiving, Christmas, any other holiday. I go all in on Easter Sunday. And I know I'm not alone. There's a special energy that permeates the room on a, on a Resurrection Sunday morning. And I couldn't be more grateful to celebrate that day here at Resurrection Church. But you might be wondering, what makes this Sunday such a big deal? Why do we put so much energy and effort into celebrating the resurrection? Well, in part, we could say that we celebrate simply to acknowledge the historical fact of the resurrection. And in that case, I would just give you an apologetics lesson on why we believe Jesus actually raised from the dead. Additionally, because Jesus rose from the dead, we can trust his promises of eternal life and future resurrection. His resurrection is proof that he can make good on all of his promises. In that way, Christ's resurrection is our supreme hope for the future. But it would be a mistake to stop our celebration there. Stopping there would be a mistake because it would lock up the power of the resurrection in 30 AD and it would lock it up in the future for some time after death. On a really personal note, I grew up in a kind of Christianity that kept Jesus in 30 AD and that said Jesus' main thing was offering me hope for when I died. And that was deeply unsatisfying because it did nothing to answer the hurt and the trouble and the sin I experienced in this life. If we only think of the resurrection as something that happened 2,000 years ago, and only something that affects our life after we die, we'll fail to see how Christianity actually matters now. But it does. It does matter for now, for the present, for this life. For that reason, we need to go further than acknowledging the resurrection's historicity, or understanding that it gives us hope for the future. We need to work to understand what the resurrection did and what its implications are for us now, today. And we need to understand how we ought to respond to the resurrection. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to consider the way that Paul deals with the resurrection in Romans 1, 1 through 7. So he explains what it actually does, and as he guides us in the way that we ought to respond to it. Now, everything that the resurrection accomplishes actually demands a response from you. You have to respond to the risen Christ. So for that reason, we need to deal with the second question first. We have to understand what response the resurrection requires so that when we encounter what the resurrection actually does, we know what to do with it. So let's begin with that second question. What is an appropriate response to the resurrection? The New Testament authors teach us how to respond to the resurrection in a variety of ways, but in Romans 1.5, Paul gives us a general statement that sums up all the other responses. And it's, it's this, the obedience of faith. Significantly, Paul starts and ends his letter with a call to the obedience of faith, and then right in the middle of the letter, Paul urges his readers to obey the gospel. So the appropriate response to the resurrected, resurrection and the resurrected Christ is the obedience of faith. 
But what is that? On the one hand, faith or allegiance is the personal commitment of the self to Jesus. Okay, so the gospel is the announcement that Jesus is the messianic king. He's the risen king. And that announcement needs to be met with the response of personal commitment to Jesus. Yet, that commitment, our faith, finds its truest expression in loyal obedience to the king. So in this way, the obedience is a result of our faith, and a life of obedience is sustained by that same faith. Now Paul's phrase, the obedience of faith, overlaps with the Apostle James's explanation that faith without works is dead. They're saying the same thing. Now for many, those expressions sound too demanding or even legalistic. But if you examine the pictures of discipleship in the gospel, there's no way that any of Jesus' disciples could be called his disciples meaningfully if they had not gotten up and followed him. If Jesus said, follow me, and they didn't follow him, if they didn't respond with the obedience of faith, would they be his disciples? Obviously, no. And the same is true for us. When we're called to follow Christ, we're called to respond with the obedience of faith, with committing ourselves to his cause. Now, this doesn't mean that every Christian will be perfect. His disciples weren't. And it doesn't mean that if you ever fail Christ, that he will fail you. But it does mean that you must radically reorient your life to following Jesus with all that you are, entrusting yourself to him. So it's not legalistic or a workspace model of Christianity. Instead, it's an active, living response to King Jesus. You see, biblical faith is not a vague sense of belief or cold mental assent to the resurrection, but a deep conviction that leads to a lasting commitment. Biblical faith is a deep conviction that leads to a lasting commitment. So the obedience of faith is a commitment to Jesus that extends to every area of life. It inspires obedience to Christ's calling and commands, and it instills confidence in his promises and his claim to be the risen Lord. So the obedience of faith is the only appropriate response to the resurrection. This response will show up in every step along the way as we consider what the resurrection accomplished. I want to point out three basic accomplishments of the resurrection, though I'm sure we could elaborate on them if we had more time. First, the resurrection affirms Jesus' kingly authority. Second, it communicates God's love. And third, it creates a community of saints. So these are the three accomplishments that we'll consider this morning. First, the resurrection affirms Jesus' kingly authority. Jesus' crucifixion was a detailed mockery of his claim to be the Messiah, a Hebrew title, or the Christ, a Greek title. But both of these titles refer to Jesus' claim to be God's anointed king. And it was that claim to be God's anointed king that ultimately led to his crucifixion. 
That claim explains why, in the accounts detailing his execution, royal imagery shows up over and over again. So the Roman soldiers put a royal robe on his bloody back and a crown of thorns on his head. Pilate placed a placard above him that said, He is the king of the Jews. The crowd protested that they had no king but Caesar. Are you catching on to the royal imagery here? Jesus' death and resurrection is inseparable from his claim to be the Messiah, to be God's anointed king. And in his resurrection, he proved that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. Now in verse 3, in Romans 1, Paul points out that Jesus was a descendant of David. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, David was Israel's greatest king. And all of the prophets in the Old Testament promised that a king greater than David would eventually come. And up until Jesus, it had never happened. But Jesus is connected to David genealogically, so he belongs to this royal dynasty. But then, Paul goes on to identify Jesus as the Son of God in verses 3 and 4. Now, that's not a Trinitarian statement here. In the ancient world, kings were called the Son of the God. And that title simply communicated, this king rules with divine authority. They represent the God. It's the offspring of the God, the Son of the God. They have divine authority. Israel's kings were described in this way as well. But there's one difference. Paul intensifies the title. In verse 4, he calls Jesus the powerful Son of God. Or depending on the translation that you're using, you might see the Son of God in power. So the title's intensified. And the point is this. Jesus is like any other Son of God that came before him. He's greater than all of his predecessors. Every other Son of God before him died. And at their death, they lost their rule. They lost their power. They were no longer the Son of God in power. Well, Jesus died too, but something else happened to Jesus that never happened to anyone else and hasn't happened since. Jesus rose from the dead, and as a result, his kingship was affirmed, and he held onto his power. His reign would never end because he conquered death. So his authority extends beyond the grave. He's not just the Son of God, he's the Son of God in power. He remains in power today. And because he's the King of kings, because he is the ruler over all, we owe him our allegiance, not just at our death, and not just in the brief moments of a conversion experience, but in all of our life. Sometimes, this picture of Jesus as king leads pastors to ask this question. Have you made Jesus the king of your life? I understand why and that question makes sense, but I think it's ultimately misleading. Because by asking if you have made Jesus the king of your life, it makes you the center of authority with the ability to crown Jesus as king. But the problem is, Jesus was crowned king at his resurrection. Whether you acknowledge it or not, Jesus is king. So you can't make him the king of your life. You can only acknowledge that he already is. And that acknowledgement doesn't change anything about the reality of Jesus' kingship, 
but it does change the reality about your belonging to his kingdom. It transfers you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's son. So what do we do with this? How do we respond to King Jesus? I want to suggest that there are at least three elements that we should keep in mind. First, pledging allegiance to King Jesus requires a refusal to shape Jesus' identity into your own making. It involves a refusal to construct your own image of Jesus, but to receive Jesus as he's presented in the scriptures, as our king. Some people want to turn Jesus into a guru who will just give them good advice. Others want to turn Jesus into a genie who will grant them whatever they wish. Others turn Jesus into a get-out-of-hell-free card that requires a quick prayer and no commitment. But we don't have permission to reshape Jesus into whatever we want him to be. We don't have permission to ignore his claims to be king. As God's king, he's working to bring about God's kingdom in the salvation from sin and the new creation and the promise of eternal life, and he offers that to us as our king, not as a guru or genie or get-out-of-hell-free card. Second, pledging allegiance to King Jesus requires refusing anything else when it wants to become king in your life. Whether it's yourself, your favorite politician, your favorite philosopher with 12 rules for your life, your job, your money, pornography, bitterness, relationships, whatever. Nothing else can replace Jesus on the throne. Jesus must rule over every realm of your life. No usurpers can be allowed to claim the throne because he is king and you must give yourself over to him completely. Third, pledging allegiance to King Jesus requires the obedience of faith. It requires committing yourself to Jesus, putting your trust in him, or better, entrusting yourself to him. It requires following after Jesus. So who do you believe Jesus to be? Or who have you made Jesus out to be? What's ruling your life? If you reoriented your life to follow Jesus in the obedience of faith, that's the call. That's the ultimate right response to the reality that the resurrection affirms Jesus' kingship. But then in this text, somewhat shockingly, Paul goes on to connect Jesus' resurrection and eternal kingship and the obedience of faith to God's love. Now, connecting Jesus' death on the cross to God's love, that picture we're all familiar with. That one makes sense. But connecting Jesus' resurrection and kingship to God's love, that one's a little bit more unsettling, a little bit more unfamiliar. It might sound a little strange, but God loved you enough to give Jesus to you as your kingly authority. God loved you enough to give you Jesus as your king. Let me state it another way that's even more unfamiliar. God loved you enough not to make you the king of your life. 
Let me say that one again because this is a little bit, um, it it's, makes us insecure because we like to be in control. We like to be the king of our life. We like to reign supreme. God loved you enough not to make you the king of your life. Now that claim sounds odd, maybe because you've never heard it before, but probably more likely because our whole culture and national history is based on the notion that having a king over you is oppressive. <laughs> Get rid of the king. You know, this is a weird thing about being a Christian. This is a side note. One of our greatest hopes is that we come under the reign of a king forever. Um, so that's strange. But we're inclined, based on this national history and our current culture, to think that the most loving thing someone can do for me is to allow me to have full, unrestricted independence, to be free to be me, to live however I want. You know, if you're a parent, you probably have a kid who just wants to be them. They don't want your rule and authority. Um, and, you know, uh, they want to be like that little lion on Lion King that sings a song, I just want to be king. That's all of us. We all just want to be king in our natural disposition. But there's one glaring problem. Unlimited independence produces anarchy and it provides a safe haven for evil. If God permitted everyone to be their own king, there would be anarchy. Society would be grotesque, unsafe, and extremely vile. So think about this, if you're not convinced. Virtually every atrocity committed in this world is a violation of one of Jesus' commands. With almost no exceptions, Every hurt or harm that has been done to you is a result of someone acting out of step with Jesus' designs. Even if it happened to be a pastor or a parent or another Christian. With someone acting under their own authority instead of Jesus's, And when we stand as our own moral authority, as restrictive as it might sound, to give it up, if we don't, we end up hurting other people along the way. Now, there was a stage, a time in world history, when God permitted that kind of autocracy, that kind of self-rule and unrestricted freedom. And there are stories about it in an Old Testament book called The Judges. And during that time, you can read about the worst, most vile crimes ever committed, with no justice offered to any of the victims. That book reads like a dystopic novel. It's like the original great dystopia. And as the cycle of human depravity spirals deeper and deeper and deeper, there are a couple of phrases that show up time and again that point out the biggest problems. One phrase is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and the other is that there was no king in the land. That's the last sad rebuking line in the book. And what does that sound like? That sounds like the picture of the good life that we hear every single week. That the best thing you could do is to do what's right in your own eyes. One of the main purposes of that book is to show that the answer to our suffering and our sin and the problems in this world isn't more freedom, isn't us determining our own realities, isn't us constructing our own moralities, but submitting to King Jesus. Although it might sound loving of God to allow you to do whatever you want, to be your own king, 
to make your own moral decisions. It would actually be very unloving of him to do so. Not only unloving to you, but unloving to anyone who makes contact with you. You know that because any problem you had in your marriage this week where you hurt your spouse or your children or anyone else was because you violated the commands of Christ. Viewed from a more philosophical lens, though, life without a king requires each one of us to face what the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard called the abyss of possibility. Now hang with me here. Any of one who's not a philosophy type, those who are philosophy types, this is like a gift for you. Life without a king puts us face to face with the abyss of possibility. When humans are their own authority and are told that they can live however they desire and become whatever they want to be, they face this abyss. Now, on its face, unrestrained freedom appears good and desirable. But in reality, this abyss becomes the source of great anxiety and ultimately leads to captivity to the kind of indecision that fractures the self. Finite creatures, human people, cannot face infinite possibilities without imploding in pursuit of them or freezing in fear of them. Now, all you non-philosophers, jump back in. Anxiety and purposelessness are present everywhere, especially among millennials and Gen Zers. You would think that the development of technology, technology and the conventions of modernity would have actually removed purposelessness and anxiety, but the opposite is true. For all the good that's come through these technological and societal advances, they've been laced with the poison of promising you that you can be and do whatever you want to be and do. It promises that you can be your own king and do whatever you want, morally speaking. And faced with that abyss of possibilities, the human soul shuts down. It can no longer love or be loved. Because when you're offered infinite options, desire dies. That's why you can scroll through your Instagram without ever stopping and be emptier inside than when you started. That's why you spend more time surfing channels on cable and Netflix. Because facing the infinite possibilities, you actually don't desire any of them anymore. And faced with the option of being whoever and whatever you want to be, your soul dies, and so does any desire you had. But in love, God removed the abyss of possibilities and offered us a king who would guide us in the way that we should go. In love, God did not leave us alone. He designated values for us to live by. He gave us direction and purpose. He offered us love. And when we enter into his love and commit ourselves to him and to live under his divine authority, we find we're actually able to live and love again. And that freedom, that love is only possible for us now because Jesus rose from the dead, because he's alive now and he offers it today. Now for some of us, the idea of giving up self-rule in order to come under the rule of King Jesus sounds terrifying because it's so limiting, because it requires commitment. 
This is especially hard for a generation of us who have had trouble committing to something as significant as marriage or as insignificant as a weekend plan because we have the fear of missing out, FOMO. We don't want to commit ourselves to one thing because what if we're missing out on something else that leaves some of us having trouble committing to Jesus because what if, just what if maybe somehow in some way, a different religion, or no religion at all, or a vague sense of spirituality, or a new technology, or another self-help book will give us what we actually need. So we diversify our commitments. We're unwilling to go all in on Jesus. But the reality is that refusal to commit to Jesus' rulership doesn't mean that nothing is ruling you. Something else will always take the throne. And it will leave us empty and we'll try something else that will leave us empty and we'll try something else that too will leave us empty. Grasping onto authority and self-rulership chains you to the abyss of possibilities that will eventually hollow your soul. But relinquishing your self-rule and entrusting yourself to Jesus gives freedom and flourishing in life. So I urge you, relinquish your control over your own life. Resist the FOMO. Pledge your allegiance to Jesus. Go all in on him. So the resurrection affirms Jesus' kingly authority, and it communicates God's love by freeing you from yourself, but it also creates a community of saints. Notice how Paul describes the church in Rome in verse 7. He calls them saints. Now, briefly, let's observe the obvious. If Jesus is king, and there are people who pledge allegiance to him, then they become kingdom citizens. So therefore, to have Jesus as your king is to belong to Jesus' kingdom. That's just obvious. But kingdom citizens are the saints that Paul's describing in verse 7. So if you're a follower of Jesus, this is you. You're part of Christ's kingdom, Believe it or not, contrary to whatever your mom told you, you're a saint. Jesus has made you a saint. But what is a saint? Does Paul mean that the Christian community is made up of perfect people who look nice and say all the right things and have all the right opinions? You know, who are just like me. Not at all. And if that's what you think a Christian or a church is, you're mistaken and you'll always be disappointed anytime you walk into a church. To get at what Paul means, we need to look to the Old Testament. There, the term saint is sometimes translated as holy one. Regardless of the translation, to be a saint or a holy person is to be designated for divine purposes. So in the Old Testament, for someone to be granted entry into the temple— the place where you would meet with God, they had to be holy or saintly. And there were various rituals or sacrifices that would move you from being a sinner or unclean to being holy or saintly and able to enter into the temple. Paul's point here, though, is that through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that happened once and for all, no more sacrifices needed to become saintly or holy. You just are, by virtue of your connection to the Holy One, Jesus. So now you're able to enter into God's presence. But to be a saint 
is to receive a calling. This isn't a natural disposition that any of us have. And this calling is a gift. I want to suggest that there's a unique grace in being called into a community. There's a unique grace in being chosen rather than choosing a community to belong to. Now, many Christians think about their kingdom citizens and kids. I can't talk anymore. Many Christians think about their kingdom citizenship and churchly belonging, their calling as saints, as just one of many of their identities and sources of belonging. To be a Christian, to be a saint, is just something that they happen to opt into or something they found themselves in by virtue of being born to a Christian family. But the biblical picture of being a kingdom citizen is that of being chosen, added, caught up in a community identity that supersedes and relativizes all other identities. That's hard for us because in the United States, um, we think we can choose what community we want to belong to. And in those options, in these identities that we can choose to adopt, are so vast that we almost freeze in trying to pick which identity we're going to claim. We're unable to commit to anything. And as a result, many Christians sense a deep and abiding loneliness and lack of connection and belonging anywhere. Now, I'm not suggesting that communities made up of in-laws or volleyball clubs or D&D storyboards or sports teams or political parties or homeschooling co-ops or any other kind should be avoided or devalued. There's great joy in participating in all of those things. Maybe not the homeschooler co-op. I I hated that stuff. (laughs) But some people love it. Rather, I'm suggesting that you find your ultimate identity your final and deepest identity as a citizen in Jesus' kingdom, that you find your primary calling as a saint and nothing else. When you do this, when you relativize all other communities and all other identities, they actually become more meaningful because you've freed them from the burden of giving you an ultimate identity and infinite belonging, something that they could never do in the first place. Now you can engage in them in meaningful ways because your party leaders will come and go. Your young adult movie night group will dissolve. Believe it or not, your athletic ability will fade. Your high school popularity will dissipate into a forgotten memory. Your children will eventually leave your home and your identity as mom and dad will shift radically. You'll leave your job through layoffs or retirement. A particular local church may fail you and hurt you deeply. Your friend group will eventually grow apart. And if any of these identity groups have grounded your sense of self and belonging, then you'll face an identity crisis that will leave you fragile and fractured. Maybe that's something you're experiencing right now. Maybe you feel like a failure because you can't live up to the picture that you've constructed for yourself. Maybe you feel like you don't belong anywhere. Maybe your sense of self is so fractured and fraught that you don't know where to turn. Turn to Christ. Christ bridges that divide between the cynicism that change is impossible and the idealism that you can change yourself effort. It, it bridges the divide towards the cynicism that says you can never belong anywhere 
and that hope of belonging that seems like it will never be reality. Find your identity and calling in him. Find your belonging in his kingdom. Because if your identity and belonging is fundamentally tied to Christ, because he rose from the dead and will never die again, that identity and belonging will never fade. It will always be there. Regardless of whatever you go through, regardless of whatever stage of life you're in, regardless of whatever change interrupts the rhythms of your life, you will be secure because you'll be in Christ. And that's a gift secured only by the resurrection of Christ. As we've seen this morning, the resurrection has lasting implications, not just a forgotten past 2,000 years ago that none of us were alive for, and not just for a far-off future when you're on your deathbed and hoping to get into heaven, but for right now. So whether you're here as a first-time guest, or whether you've been coming for a long time, we want to help you find your belonging in Christ's kingdom. We want to equip you to live as a good citizen of King Jesus. We want to help you establish your identity in Christ. As one author put it, to take account of the resurrection is to wake up to a new reality, strikingly different to the world inhabited by those for whom Christ rising from the dead is a myth or a hoax. It transforms our sense of who we are in the world, what we do, and why we are to do it. So how will you respond to the risen Lord? Will you accept his kingship and find in him your all in all? Let's do this together. Father, we thank you for raising Christ from the dead by your spirit. I pray for all of us who are here that you would give us the faith to commit ourselves to King Jesus, to pledge our allegiance to him, to take our cue and guide from him, and to live under his authority as good citizens of the kingdom. And would you strengthen this assembly to grow together so that we can be a beautiful picture of your restoring and redeeming grace in all of our brokenness and hurt and sadness. Would you work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.